Paul will hear argument now on number 93-356, MCI Tele- Telecommunications Corporation versus AT&T and United States versus AT&T. Uh, Mr. Wright. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Under Section 203A of the Communications Act, telephone companies are required to file tariffs. The issue in this case is whether the Federal Communications Commission has authority to relieve non-dominant long-distance companies of the requirement that they file tariffs. In our view, that question is answered by Section 203B2 of the Act, which provides that the Commission may modify any requirement of Section 203. Since the Commission may modify any requirement of Section 203, it may modify the tariff filing requirement established by Section 203. A. Could it go so far as to say nobody has to file a tariff? Uh, that is the position that the FCC has taken, and, and, uh, and of course, the D.C. Circuit uh, struck that down. Now, we believe that modify any requirement would mean that. Let me point out in response to your question that the FCC has not gone nearly that far. The modify including AT&T or just the non-dominant carriers? Could you, could you do away with the rate filing altogether, or is your position just that you can do away with it with respect to non-dominant carriers? Well, that's certainly all we're arguing about today. Now, I guess I'd interpreted Justice Souter's question as sort of assuming that AT&T would become non-dominant at some point in the future. Um, I I don't know any rationale for eliminating the tariff filing requirement for a dominant carrier like AT&T. Why do you draw the distinction? Market power? Yes, that, that's exactly the, the... That's that's a reason, but where do you find that in the text? Well, um, the Commission has the authority, under our broadest reading of the statute, the Commission has the authority to modify any requirement. There would be a question as to whether or not it was reasonable to, to relieve dominant carriers of the authority. Uh, in I, your position would be it would not be reasonable? Uh, I don't... We... we I... Um, the Commission hasn't taken any You think any it would be reasonable for us to take the position that it would not be reasonable? Well, um, right now the Commission has not articulated any reason for, for relieving dominant carriers of such No, but I think we just want to know whether we accept your position here, and, and if we accept your position here, do we, in effect, in, by implication, go the whole hog? Uh, our, our reading of the statute, modifying any requirement, yes, would, would allow the Commission for appropriate re- reasons to relieve all, all carriers of the, of the tariff filing requirement. I, I, sort of the act is no longer necessary. It's a fully competitive industry and will simply uh, modify the act to no longer exist. Um, if, if, if and when uh, it happens that the industry is fully competitive, then we believe Congress has authorized the Commission to, to do away with a, with a tool mm. to, to enforce just and reasonable rates that would no longer have a, have a, a, a purpose. Why is it that uh, I think you acknowledge that the only purpose of the that the purpose of the act is not only to to assure reasonable rates but also to prevent price discrimination? I don't I don't know why it is so self-evident that when there is competition, there cannot be effective price discrimination. I, I don't understand that at all. Well, I bought a new car. <clears throat> it's a very competitive industry, but. Uh, Unless you're a good uh, good negotiator, you're not going to get as good a price as somebody who is. Well, uh, unreasonably discriminatory, uh, as construed uh, by the Commission, includes, uh, uh, the, I'm, I'm sorry, 
competition uh, assumes that, that there'll be give and take of negotiation and that the fact that different rates get uh, determined does not necessarily show that something is unreasonably discriminatory. I'd, I'd like to rely on AT&T's submission to the Commission to answer your question, though. I mean, they, they said that by definition, non-dominant carriers lack sufficient market power to be able to engage in improper price discrimination without suffering the discipline of the market. Price. urging us to believe AT&T, are you? In, in this particular in this instance, particular. Your Honor. Um, I, I also wanted to make the point in response to Justice Souter's question that so far um, all the Commission has done is relieve uh, part of one of three markets of the uh, tariff filing requirement. It has not been lifted for international calls. It has not been lifted, by and large, for the local um, exchange carriers, which do 99% of the interstate access service. It's only been lifted for 40% of the long-distance market uh, not served by AT&T. And with respect to that 40%, um, non-dominant carriers like MCI frequently choose to file tariffs, especially with respect to residential customer services. So the, another way to put it is that it's been eliminated for all of the interstate market except AT&T. Uh, for, for carriers who choose to, uh, to, choose to, fi to file tariffs. And, and, and for everybody in that whole market except AT&T. Yes, the, it, it's not mandatory for, for the non-dominant carriers. Um, <clears throat> AT&T reads the statute differently. It, it says that it, uh, it doesn't apply to any requirement. Uh, specifically, it doesn't uh, apply to the tariff filing requirement because that's a core requirement of the Act. In AT&T's view, the statute only allows the FCC to modify formalities. Uh, we have two responses. First, that's not what the statute says. The statute doesn't say anything about core requirements or formalities. Um, and in fact, it's not at all clear that such a rule would be needed for formalities. Section 203A says very little about formalities. And what it does say is the following. Um, tariff shall contain such other information and be printed in such form and be posted and kept open for public inspection in such places as the commission may by regulation require. So there's another provision that gives the, uh, another provision in section 203 that gives the commission authority over, over those formalities. There was a time when the commission took a different view of 203, was there not? The 203 required rate to be filed. There's a, there's a 1980 order of the commission that in the text says something that sounds like that and in the accompanying footnote says, but of course section 203 is very broad and, and the issue in that case was not whether or not, uh, you, you know, that was dicta in that case. Both of those contradictory statements were dicta in that case. Um, since 1980, the Commission has been firmly of the view that it has authority to lift this requirement. Well, was the 1980 case a case where the Commission had been requested to modify the requirement? Uh, no, Your Honor. No. It was a different matter. Um, you give modify a very broad reading, and you are explicit about that. You say it means more than the word exempt. Is that your well, position? Well, uh, yes. We, we define it in light of uh, Webster's uh, ninth New Collegiate Dictionary. But yet, in, in, in legal litany, modify is usually a kind of an in-between word, like um, courts have authority to affirm, modify, or reverse a lower court decision. And, and, and I would concede even that one of modifies meaning would even be more limited than that, that in some cases it would only mean circumscribed alterations. But, 
but there are different... Not one of its meanings, it's just normal meaning. I mean, you have, so you have ninth... There are bad dictionaries, just like there are bad regulations. Uh, there, there are a whole bunch of English words that come from the same Latin root, all of which have a connotation of, of limitation, uh, moderate, modulate, e even the word modest. It all comes from, from the same root, and they all... a root which, which means measure. And they all contain that limitation of measured, limited. Uh, and, and it seems to me that modify uh, bears that same connotation as all of them. I don't care what one edition of Webster's might have, have said about it. Well, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, Webster's Collegiate Dictionary very clearly, uh, the FCC's construction fits within its definition. And this is not an obscure dictionary. This is one this Court's relied on. This Court's favorite dictionary is Webster's Third New World Dictionary. You've relied on it as recently as January. You relied on it nine or ten times last term, and it includes a definition to make a basic or important change in. Um, so to make a basic or important change—that's what modify means. To make a basic change. That is that is one of the which, definitions. Which, which of, meaning is that in terms of numbers? Um, I'm not sure, Your Honor. Um, but wasn't there a point made that at the time? this act was passed, perhaps that definition wasn't there? Well, AT&T has not actually said this. It suggested that perhaps modify has changed in meaning since 1934. But actually, the, the definitions that they cite from the 30s all say alter. Now, we'd be happy uh, if, you want, if, if this means alter any provision. We, we think that the FCC has authority to alter any provision. There's a wonderful, wonderful line sung by the bass in the Messiah, Mr. Wright, where it says, and we shall be changed. And there's a, a feeling of transformation about it. You said that could be sung, and we shall be modified. It <laughs> really convey the same, the same notion. Well, on a practical level, it's occurred to me that before I went to law school, I thought edit meant you know, change a few tenses. Then after seeing what a, what a law review would do to something I wrote, I realized that it means rewrite. Now, if somebody on a law review told me they were going to modify rather than edit what I was submitting, I'd really be scared about what was, <laughs> what was happening. Let me also say that this case is very similar to the Amtrak case, the case decided two years ago, National Passenger Railroad versus um, Boston and Maine. The issue in that case was what the word required meant. The D.C. Circuit had said that it had to mean necessary, that required meant necessary. That's the first definition. Um, the ICC had said, no, we're going to interpret it just to mean useful in this context. We're going to give it what was effectively a broader meaning. Um, this court said that few phrases in a complex scheme of regulation are so clear as to be beyond the need for interpretation when implied in a real context, and went on to say that the existence of alternative dictionary definitions of the word required, each making some sense under the statute, itself indicates that the statute is open to interpretation. In this case, you can put modify in place of required and reach the exact same uh, conclusion. Let me add in that respect that AT&T uh, has cited, uh, the, even though we devoted a few pages of our brief to it, has cited that case only in a footnote, where they say that the uh, reason it's distinguishable is because our definition of the statute makes no sense at all. What about the, 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 the other language, Mr. Wright? It not only says modified, but also says in, in, in special circumstances. Is that, do I have the language right? Um, th that's one of it. It says, yes. it says, in its discretion and for good cause shown, modify any requirement, either in particular instances or by general order applicable to special circumstances. And you say the special circumstances could be that the entire industry is now competitive 
the special circumstance is what 1993. Well, we think looking at looking at looking at the situation today, from what Congress uh, saw in 1934. Uh, Today is a special circumstance. The, the fact the fact that AT&T no longer holds a monopoly over long distance service, but that there are that there are 481 other non-dominant carriers. You're not specified circumstances. It's special circumstances. Don't you think that contains a connotation of, of limitation? Not not general circumstances applicable to the entire industry, but special circumstances. Some some limit. Well, it's not yet. I mean, as I've said, it's only applicable to one part of one of three markets here. Uh, the fact that there's competition, there's well, not. Okay, well, now we're just arguing about about how special special has to be. But uh, but that already backs you off of your initial position, which is that that uh, that really it, it could extend to the entire. Uh, no, well, well, that's another. I, we would think that the commission has authority to to uh, uh, define what special circumstances are too. And, and, and could decide that the, the inter, that especially viewed from the lens of 1934, that when there was really no competition at all, that today's telecommunication world is so special circumstances different. can include everything. That, that, the entire realm of communications can be special circumstances. If in, yes. if in fact if the commission says so. If in fact the communications industry is, has changed that dramatically. Um, so, so your rule is that when when the general circumstances are different from the predicate for the original legislation. As long as this modification power is in there, in effect, the legislation can, in effect, be repealed by the commission. Well, I wouldn't phrase it that way, but... but well, I, but, I wouldn't but, either but, if I were arguing <laughs> your side of the case, but, I mean, that's, that's, that's where you go. But, but, but look, at, in, in, this, in 203, there are, there are um, seven, seven sentences. One of them is 203B. Uh, five of the others contain a direction that carriers shall do something. Um, the verb shall is used in, in five of those sentences. The commission has said that is told that it may modify any of those requirements. Um, it seems clear to us that the commission may change the rules. That that's what Congress has authorized it to do. And 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 in fact, I, I don't think I quite made the point that how little um, AT&T's view uh, allows the commission to do under modify any requirement. Um, uh, as I say, all it says is that we may modify formalities, um, and we already have authority to modify most of the for formalities. They. they Congress, Congress expressly delegated that to the to the commission as well. AT&T reads this to modify some requirements. Yeah, well, maybe you're both wrong. I mean, maybe maybe they can uh, affect tariffs, but not all of them. Maybe they can they can suspend one now and then or whatnot. I I, I don't think we're driven to take either either view in particular. Well, the logic of AT&T's position may be that we can go as far as we've gone and de-tariff part of one of three markets and not go as far as to de-tariff it if, if that becomes appropriate. But I, I don't really think that they've made that argument. Have we held, Mr. Wright, that Chevron deference is equally applicable to an independent uh, commission as it is to an agency of the, agency of the government? I, 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 I believe so. I, um, certainly the, um, um, the uh, Amtrak case that I just cited was an ICC case. And, and uh, um, if anything, it would seem that more deference would be appropriate. But I'm not asking for any more, just, just the same. More amount. deference is due to a body that's not controlled by uh, elected representatives directly? Well, I'll stand on the Amtrak case and, and, and the fact that, that that case is almost exactly like this one. If I may, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Wright. Mr. Verrilli? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. 
I'd like to start, if I could, with the text of 203B. I think it's clear that as a practical matter, what the Commission has done here is not to eliminate the tariff filing requirement. We think that's also true as a textual matter. What the Commission has done here is to make the requirement conditional. In theory, this requirement continues to exist and operate for every carrier. The question is whether the carrier meets the conditions that trigger the requirement. It seems to us it is as much a modification of a requirement to change the conditions that trigger it as to change the obligations that are, in fact, triggered. The Commission has done no more than that here. Additionally, we think that Section 203C, in fact, in particular, the first sentence of 203C, makes clear that the Commission has the power to remove the tariff obligation entirely because it says that service must be provided under tariff unless otherwise provided by or under the authority of of the Act. Plainly, Section 203b2, in our view, which is the very preceding sentence in the Act, is authority conferred in the Act to remove the tariff filing obligation. Mr. Borelli, in terms of the plainly, do I recall incorrectly that it was at one time MCI's position that the FCC must require rate filing and it could not uh, do away with that requirement either on a mandatory or even a permissive basis? Ten years ago, Your Honor, MCI took that position in the Court of Appeals. We now think that that position is wrong. We thought that position was wrong for many years, and uh, we tried to indicate that in our brief at uh, footnote 5, our reply brief. Um, in any event, it's, it's our view now that this statute is capable of the meaning that the Commission has ascribed to it, which under Chevron is all that ought to be required to trigger deference. But I yes, just wanted to establish that clearly you didn't really mean the clearly because you were arguing just what we have been discussing 10 years ago, so at least you found a plausible basis for making the argument that you made successfully um, 10 years ago. Yes, Your Honor. 10 years ago, MCI made that argument. We think, though, that the reading that we're advancing today is the better reading, particularly given Section 203C, which makes clear that the requirement can be removed. Well, all that that gets you is, is that you can remove some. You can modify tariffs just as you can modify other things. It doesn't necessarily show that you can make the kind of uh, massive modification uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, in, in effect, de-tariff an entire an entire segment of the industry, save for, save for one, uh, uh, one provider, uh, well, right? I mean, all it shows is that you can affect tariffs. It You're shows still left with the problem of, uh, you know, how far Modify takes you and, and what are special circumstances. Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. But it seems to us that the logic must be that if the Commission has the authority to remove it in some circumstances, therefore, the necessary implication is that it's not in those circumstances, indispensable to the functioning of Title II, if the logic that would allow the Commission to take that step exists with respect to 10 carriers and also exists with respect to 100 or 400 carriers, that there's no natural stopping place, that if the logic works for for the small number of carriers and the logic works equally well for the large number of carriers, the Commission ought to have the discretion to expand that power to uh, include the large number of carriers. Simply no policy justification for saying, well, it's okay to exempt 10, but it's not okay to exempt 400. Just a textual justification, the word modify and the word special circumstances. 
Well, Your Honor, so long there are special circumstances here, which is the lack of market power. The requirement hasn't been eliminated. It's been made conditional. So, so the Commission has remained faithful to the text. And as long as it is Are you still of the view that the mandatory no filing would be impermissible? So that you... No, Your Honor, we're not. I think the logic of our position is that the mandatory detariffing would, as a matter of statutory interpretation, be a permissible step. You really have come 180 degrees. With respect to the meaning of Section 203, yes, that's correct, Your Honor. But then so has the Commission, so has AT&T. I mean, there's enough of that to go around, is there? Thank you, Justice Scalia. I think that's correct. Um, I'd also like to focus for a minute on what I take to be AT&T's central argument, which is the position you advocate today is advocated by an older and wiser and more experienced lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. Thank you. What I take to be AT&T's central argument is that Title II of the Act cannot be enforced absent tariff filings. We think that that is simply wrong. Although tariff filing is one method of enforcing an anti-discrimination provision, it is clearly not the only method. The Commission has made a decision here in its discretion that it wants to use the complaint process as the statutory, as the principal enforcement method. That is a decision that is owed substantial deference. It's a reasonable policy decision, particularly given AT&T's concession, that non-dominant carriers can't charge unreasonable or discriminatory rates. Indeed, many, not, many price discrimination statutes, the antitrust laws, the Robinson-Patman Act, state unfair competition laws, are routinely enforced without any requirement of published rates. The logic that allows those statutes to function is a logic on which the Commission ought to be entitled to rely here. Well, it's, it's also, <laughs> those statutes are applied to competitive industries as well. <laughs> I'm not sure those statutes help you. I mean, they, those statutes operate on the assumption that the mere presence of competition does not eliminate price discrimination. Indeed, the price discrimination is a tool that's often used uh, most often in, in fiercely competitive industries. But they do operate on the assumption, Justice Scalia, that the very existence of competitors is likely to ferret out the price discrimination, that competitors have an incentive to find out what the other competitors are charging, and that customers have an incentive to disclose the best offers they're getting from one competitor in order that another competitor can come in and meet or beat that price. And therefore, it's a matter of disclosure of the rates being offered that counts here, that makes the enforcement mechanism work. And that's the kind of logic the Commission relied on here. In our judgment, that was plainly a reasonable decision. The third point I'd like to make, is, if I could, is that it would, in our view, be an unwarranted extension of the filed rate doctrine to apply Maislin here. In our view, by far more, the case most on point is Permian Basin. In Permian Basin, this court faced an analog to the question faced today. Does an agency have the statutory authority to remove a tariff obligation? In that case, the tariff obligations of Section 4 of the Natural Gas Act. In Permian, this court squarely held that the Federal Power Commission had that authority. And it did so in the statute, Section 4 of the Federal Power Act, that imposed an unequivocal obligation on every carrier to file all rates. Section 4 of the Natural Gas Act also imposed a non-discrimination and a reasonable pricing requirement, just as does the Communications Act. In fact, the Natural Gas Act was modeled on the Interstate Commerce Act and was passed in 1938. Despite all that, this court concluded that the, the Federal Power Commission did not exceed its statutory authority in removing that requirement for small producers of natural gas. Now, that exemption from the tariff requirement in Permian Basin, if one goes back and reads the agency decision at 34 Federal Power Commission 235, 
applied to 2,000 of the 2,100 producers of natural gas, who in the aggregate produced 15% of the natural gas supply. You want, to let a, you want us to allow the FCC to do for communications what the Federal Power Commission did for the uh, energy industry? We think that the proper role of the agency ought to be respected here, just as it was in Permian Basin, recognizing that the tariff mechanism needs to be adjusted in light of change. My impression is that Permian Basin was the first step to a, to a real regulatory disaster, which we, we've ended up sorting out during the past decade uh, with great difficulty. Well, that may or may not be correct, Justice Scalia, but that seems to me to be in the bailiwick of the agency. The agency's made a decision that this the removal of tariffs in this circumstance will advance the public interest, will make this market more efficient and more competitive, and in our view, that's a judgment that ought to be respected. We think there's just a fundamental difference between the question that was at issue in Maislin, whether a filed rate must be followed, and the question at issue here, where the agency, whether the agency has the statutory authority to remove that. We think, as we said, that the text of 203, particularly focusing on that first sentence of 203C, makes clear that the FCC has that authority. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Borelli. Uh, Mr. Carpenter, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, the issue in this case is whether Congress has given the FCC the power to exempt a broad and conceitedly potentially unlimited class of communications common carriers from a statutory requirement that was copied almost verbatim from those of the Interstate Commerce Act and that is utterly central to the statutory scheme for the same reasons this Court identified in the Maislin case. Uh, we submit that it's very clear from the language of the Act, both 203 looked at in isolation and in context of the Act as a whole, and from its history that the Communications Act just isn't susceptible to the FCC's interpretation, which was the basis for the Court of Appeals' decision, but that even if the statutory terms were ambiguous, uh, a century of decisions of this Court, uh, reaffirmed recently in Maislin and uh, the 86 Square D decision, established that uh, exceptions to statutory filed rate requirements can't be inferred from general or ambiguous provisions and uh, there's no way that uh, Section 203B is an explicit exemption. Um, the, uh, the, the statute... Okay, why, why, I, don't see, I, I really uh, didn't, I didn't... Didn't follow that? There, yes. Why, why is it not an explicit exemption? I can understand how you can quarrel about the, the scope of it, but surely it's an explicit... Well, as I say, we say the statute is not... 203B can't be read as authorizing what they want to authorize, which is exempting carriers from the requirement of 203A that they file all their rates or the requirement of 203C that they charge only filed rates. And your position is that they cannot exempt any carrier at any time, no matter what the circumstance and no matter how narrow the circumstance, right? That is our position. That's correct. They cannot exempt. They can, they can modify the requirement, uh, but they can't exempt. Well, what's the difference between modification and exempting? Uh, they cannot remove the requirement that carriers file all their charges somehow, someplace, somewhere, and the requirement that they charge only uh, the, the uh, rates that they filed, except in the situations where the statute explicitly authorizes exceptions, and there are many such exceptions. Then what does exemption mean, which do you say they can do? They cannot do. They cannot remove the requirement that every carrier file all its charges and they can't remove the, the parallel requirement that carriers charge only filed rates. 
That's our position. And that follows from the terms of, of the statute. Uh, 203A requires every carrier to file all charges. 203C, just the flip side, prohibits uh, a carrier from, char- from charging unfiled rates. And 203B uh, only requires that the FCC may modify any requirement of the statute in particular circumstances. And the- Mr. Carpenter, do you think they could modify the filing requirement by changing the agency where the rates are filed? Yes, yes. In fact, uh, uh, the, both, both circuits that have adopted the uh, interpretation that we're advocating, the Second Circuit and the D.C. Circuit, have allowed precisely that. What if they said we'll file them in the, in the sales office of the corporate headquarters? Well, we're not, we're not, we're now quibbling, we're now, we're well, quibbling about the, uh, I imagine they may do that. They may, they may have all their people know what the rates are, just file them and have them open for public expect- well, inspection at the home office. Well, uh, the, the question ultimately, I think they have to be filed in some public, public agency, but the question ultimately boils down to this. You cannot enforce the other provisions of the statute. Let me just interrupt yeah. you a minute. If, if you will agree they don't have to file them with the commission, what is it in the statute that says they must file them with some other public agency? Uh, what, what is it, what it, my position ultimately is that they can modify the requirements of 203B, and, but they can't modify the other provisions of the statute, which they concede. And the courts have, have you know, long held that the uh, publication and filing of the rate somehow, someplace, somewhere is, ultimate, is, uh, is central to the enforcement of all these other provisions of the statute that can't be modified. Uh, the ban on uh, unreasonable discrimination, the requirements that rates be just and reasonable. So unless the rates are filed and published somewhere, those other provisions can't be, uh, can't be enforced and won't uh, the statutory objective. Somewhere must, could not be their own corporate offices open to the public when anybody wants to come in and look at them. That being so far from this case, I guess my position is it should be a public agency because I'm not confident that, that they really would be open anywhere else. But uh, that's so far from this I case. I understand your opponent's position is that we should really treat this as sort of a Robinson-Patman Act as long as they're non-discriminatory and they, they adhere to uniform rates and so forth. The purpose of the statute is served. Now, the purpose of the statute uh, wouldn't be served in that event. Because the purpose of the statute is to assure that all similarly situated customers pay equal rates. And what in these quotations of ATT positions taken out of context, you know, we freely acknowledge that if there's no market power, that you obviously won't have rate differences that result from exercises of market power. But for the reasons that uh, I understood Justice Scalia to be identifying, in a competitive market, you are always going to have rate differences. Yes, you can have most economists take the view that in a true competitive market, there cannot be economic discrimination. There, absolutely. There cannot be economic discrimination, and there cannot be anti-competitive discrimination in a competitive market. But there will be rate differences between similarly situated customers, and this statute rests on the ground that you want to prevent those. And those, the, the certain and direct method of preventing those kinds of rate differences, with, which is what the statute is directed at, is requiring that they be published so that all similarly situated customers can know of them and demand them. And this court's held many, many years that that was the congressionally prescribed means of carrying out the statute. And it's for this reason that in Maislin you held uh, that exceptions to the rate filing requirements can't be inferred even from facially applicable provisions. There was the ban on, on reasonable practices. And the conduct at issue there was, uh, in my view, fraudulent. It was an unreasonable practice under 
a normal interpretation of that term, but she refused to construe, the court refused to construe the term uh, uh, broadly because that would undercut the central provision of the statute, essential to achieving all these other uh, uh, purposes. Um, and that you said you, you wouldn't allow exceptions to the uh, rate filing requirements unless they were explicit in the statute. And that rule we, we submit would control here if you reach the issue, but I would submit you don't have to, that the D.C. Circuit was correct, that you cannot construe the term modified broadly to allow the removal of the rate filing requirements uh, for any carrier. As we point out in the, the brief, um, you know, this battle of dictionaries is, 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 is um, one we've been fighting. Uh, certainly the ordinary meaning of the term and the term in effect of the dictionaries at the time the statute, uh, the definition in effect when the statute was passed, uh, wouldn't uh, allow exemptions. MCI has this argument now that, uh, that modify means make conditional, um, which means that, uh, that it authorized conditional exemptions. Uh, that's not a d- definition of modify. But even if it were, this, the text of the statute forecloses this because it says modify in special conditions. As they say, page 8 of their brief, they want to read modify so it means remove the terrifying requirements in special conditions. They're just rewriting the statute. The statute says modify in particular con- circumstances or conditions, and they want to rewrite it to say remove. Well, uh, Mr. Carpenter, what, what provisions do you think the, the modification provision applies to? It doesn't apply to tariffs. What does it apply to? What what? What provisions of 203 can be modified? Yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I got in trouble when I referred to the first one, which is where the race be filed. Uh, and the other one, which has is, which, um, is, uh, been a big issue in the, um, in the past, is, is uh, what constitutes a rate schedule. Um, uh, obviously, in the ordinary meaning, a, a rate schedule or a tariff is a price list, and it's something that you can place an order under. You see the list of prices, and you go to a carrier, and you place an order under the tariff. Uh, well, the, the ICC has interpreted uh, the statute to allow the filing of ordinary contracts, contracts between customers and, and carriers, uh, which aren't, you know, price lists that you can place an order under. They only apply between the parties. And the courts have held that, uh, that's, that, that that's a permissible modification because it doesn't undercut the other purposes of the statute well, because the rates are filed so similarly situated customers can request them. Yeah, but the point, the point I'm getting at is, is are, are you willing to apply your, your categorical notion that modify cannot include elimination, not even elimination in narrow circumstances, uh, for example, to the other things that it covers, uh, for example, to whether you have to apply schedules to each of your connecting carriers. I suppose you're compelled to take the position that uh, there can be no exceptions, no complete exceptions to say that uh, this... Uh, I fear I, I, I may, I may be, um, uh, to some extent, misleading you. Our position is they can modify the requirements, of, of the, the, the filing requirements of the statute, uh, and that uh, in deciding what that means, you have to look at the other provisions of the statute uh, for, to which the filing requirements are centrally important. And the key thing, as you said in Maislin, is that, uh, is that, the, that uh, the rates charged each, each customer be stated in or ascertainable from the public filing. So if that purpose is being served, uh, I, I think they can do lots of things to these other requirements so long as that purpose is served. Um, and, uh, and, and the example I just gave you, where they, where they allow things that aren't traditional rate schedules, would be an example of a modification of the requirements of the statute uh, that, uh, that does modify the requirements of 203, but it's consistent with the statute as a whole because it doesn't affect the enforcement of the other provisions that uh, the filing requirement is designed to serve. So there's all sorts of things that I can imagine being done uh, in modifying the requirements of 203, but the one thing that can't be done 
uh, which is that uh, there, be, there can't be any modification of the requirement that the rates and the terms and conditions affecting the rates be filed so that similarly situated customers are in a position where they can know what they are and demand them, which is what, what you, this court's held uh, really for a century, going back to you know, all the decisions you cited in Maislin stand for the proposition that the, this rate filing requirement, that the rates be filed somehow, someplace, somewhere, is utterly central to the statute as a whole. Suppose a federal agency gets into the telecommunications business and its, uh, its, uh, its rates are published in the Federal Register pursuant to its statute. Could the, uh, could the FCC say that the, uh, the rates of that, uh, of that particular carrier do not have to be filed under the Act? Um, well, I, well, to answer your hypothetical question, I, I could imagine someone arguing that the statutory purposes were adequately served in, in that circumstance. Uh, happily, in this circumstance, there's no dispute that the statutory purposes aren't being served. No, but because I'm just guessing about whether you're right. really categorical about you must file tariffs. Well, I, I'm categorical. No, you're right. hard argument to sustain. Well, I think, you, I think what I'm categorical about is that carriers cannot be excused from the obligation that they file their rates. They don't have to look like tariffs. They maybe don't have to be filed at the FCC. Uh, I'm I'm categorical about the fact that the the, the requirements of the statute can be modified up to the point that there's no interference with the core of the statute, which goes to the whole statute, not just 203, that the rates be published so that everyone knows what they are and so the the, uh, anti-discrimination provisions of the statute uh, can be enforced. What about the the argument put forward by the FCC that the statute would be redundant if all that modify implies is what you said, because 203D would do that job. The 203C? Is it 203C? Yeah, well, that, this is um, Mr. Verley's argument that, uh, that, that the language of Section 203 and the FCC's, the language of Section 203 uh, shows that you have to read Section 203B to authorize the kind of exemptions that we say are prohibited. But that's just wrong. I mean, Section 203C says that the carriers have to charge only filed rates uh, except as provided, uh, unless otherwise provided by or under the authority of this chapter. It says chapter, not section. If it were referring to 203B, it would, it would say section. And it's argued in the reply that, um, uh, that there's no other provision in the statute uh, that uh, authorizes exceptions to the requirement, uh, uh, that in which the FCC is authorized to create exceptions to the requirement that um, uh, carriers charge only filed rates. But that's just untrue, too. In um, our brief, page 20, note 26, uh, we list a number of examples, and in each of them, the FCC is delegated authority to enter orders or take other actions that will have the effect of excusing carriers from the obligation that they filed, they charge only filed rates. Just to take one of them, the first one we list is 201B and 211, which says, 201B, which is page 1A of our statutory appendix, says that nothing in this chapter would prohibit contracts between carriers for, the, for exchanges of service if the FCC enters an order that is in the public interest. So under this procedure, you file a contract with the FCC. If it approves, uh, then you're authorized, the carriers are authorized to swap services with one another and not charge each other filed rates. That's true of each every other example we list. In each of those other provisions, 205, 210, and the newly enacted 332, uh, the, the FCC is authorized to take specific action that will have the effect of relieving carriers uh, from the requirement that they charge only filed rates. And the fact that Congress enacts these specific exemptions 
uh, just shows that the modification authority isn't as broad. And if you want contemporaneous evidence that Congress didn't understand the modification authority uh, to include the authority to exempt people from the rate filing requirements uh, whatsoever, uh, at the same time Congress enacted the Communications Act, or the year next year, it, en- it enacted the Motor Carrier Act. And it has the same filing requirements, the same modification provisions, applicable both to uh, motor common carriers, that's Section 217 of the Act, and uh, motor contract carriers, that's 218. And in the contract carrier provision, it has the rate filing requirement, then it has the modification provision, then after that there's a provision that says the ICC is authorized to grant relief from the requirements of this statute. That clearly shows that Congress didn't understand the modification authority reaches as broad as uh, they say because it had enacted a specific additional provision authorizing them to grant relief. So whatever the scope of modification... Was the additional provision subject to any uh, restrictions? That seems like an extremely broad... Uh, it was subject to the restriction. The ICC had to find it to be in the public interest and consistent with, uh, I believe it said, national transportation policy. Um, so, I mean, when Congress wants to authorize exemptions from the statutory rate filing requirements, it uses different language. It doesn't say modify. In fact, in the um, Court of Appeals opinion that's really at issue here, an 85 opinion, um, the Court of Appeals goes on at pages 16 and, and uh, through 18 to describe all sorts of statutes where there's explicit exemptions to the rate filing requirements, and each of those have the same sort of modification provisions uh, that are at issue here. Um, Mr. Carver, just in the, in the example you just gave us about the grant relief and that, how broad that, when did Congress enact that statute? 1935. Oh, that's in the original. Okay. Yes. No, that's, uh, that's the original Motor Carrier Act. And that was obviously carried through. In fact, in May's one, uh, among your reasons for uh, declining to uh, allow the FCC to uh, uh, create an exception to the rate filing requirements uh, under the unreasonable practices ban is the fact that Congress had, had adopted explicit exemptions uh, for, for motor contract carriers. And that was also an issue in um, the regular common carrier decision that was relied on um, in Maislin and um, I believe just Judge, then Judge Scalia wrote in a former life. Um, Mr. Gardner, what do, you, what do you respond to the argument that the existence of competition is a, is a special circumstance? There's no doubt that the existence of competition is an extremely significant fact in this regulatory scheme. Uh, as we have said in trying to get uh, deregulation for ourselves, it justifies modifications of the rate filing requirements. It justifies elimination of cost support requirements with, with the filings. It, it eliminates, uh, uh, it justifies eliminating active forms of, uh, of cost of service regulation, shortening the notice period to, to as little as one day. Um, so it's a very significant fact. But the statute says you can modify in particular circumstances, not exempt. And all, all, comp- all competition allows within under 203 is the sort of streamlined regulation that we are seeking in this uh, petition that we filed that people keep misquoting. So competition is very significant, but, but it, it, it doesn't eliminate the need for the rate filing requirements uh, for the reasons that I said earlier, because you can, you'll have price differences even in competitive markets. They're not anti-competitive, but uh, they're, they are price differences that Congress sought to eliminate. Congress wanted equal rates for similarly situated customers and, and decided the way to achieve that is making everyone file rates so that all, all customers would know what they were and could demand them. Does the FCC have a developed body of law to define what is a dominant uh, participant in an industry, or is this a, a category, a, a juridical category that is, that is new uh, for this regulation only? Uh, the, the FCC has, has, uh, 
has, uh, has had this, this classification uh, for a number of years. I believe it dated from the early 1980s, and they define dominant carriers as carriers possessing market power, uh, and it has significance uh, for tariff-fine requirements and for other provisions, because dominant carriers are subject to uh, some FCC regulations, I believe, is, that others... Is there support in the statute for that uh, category in these areas where the FCC has been applying it? Uh, we, 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 I don't believe, have ever argued that the FCC doesn't have the authority to make that distinction for some purposes. Uh, our point here, uh, and I, uh, our point here is only that uh, whatever the significance of that distinction for other purposes, uh, you can't be off, it can't be a basis to exempt carriers from what the st- from what the statute unambiguously requires that all do, which is to charge only filed rates. Um, as, as I said, that uh, we think this case, even if you were to disagree with us, that the statute is susceptible uh, is to the FCC's interpretation, we think this case is controlled by the decision in Maislin, um, because it, it establishes, as uh, you know, many prior cases had, that rate filing requirements are so central to the statutory scheme that even broad and facially applicable provisions of the law, like the ban on unreasonable practices at issue there, uh, can't be construed to authorize exceptions to the rate filing requirement unless Congress is explicitly so provided. Um, I, I believe today, and certainly in the reply brief, uh, that uh, Mr. really tried to distinguish Maislin by saying that it, it, inv- it didn't involve the requirement that rates be filed, but only a requirement, which is the requirement of Section 203A of the statute, but involved only a requirement that uh, carriers follow uh, whatever tariffs they've, they've, um, fi- they've filed and that they not charge rates that are different from those that are set forth in the tariff. Uh, and they say there's a fundamental distinction in the statute between the two. Now, even if that were true, it wouldn't do these petitioners any good because they're doing exactly what they say, what Maislin said they couldn't do. They're charging lower rates than those set forth in the tariffs. That's what MCI did in the underlying litigation that led to this. It was negotiating... Uh, discounts of 5 to 10 percent uh, below its generally applicable tariff rates. And the FCC and MCI each explain in their brief that the consequence of their position is that carriers can go off and cut secret deals, rebates, all the things that 203C of the statute prohibit. So even if there, there, there were the distinction that they're positing, it wouldn't do them any good here because uh, this order allows exactly what Maislin prohibits. Uh, but the more fundamental point is that there's no distinction in the statute uh, between merely f- filing rates, which they say is a 203 obligation, and merely following tariffs, which they say is the 203C duty. Um, the, the two obligations are absolutely parallel. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. They're opposite sides of the same coin. If you charge a customer a rate that's lower than that set forth in your tariff and don't, and don't file the lower negotiated rate, you're violating both Section 203 and Section 20, both Section 203A and Section 203C. You're violating 203A because you're not filing all your charges. You're violating 203C because you're, you're charging a customer a rate that's not filed. The two obligations are, are parallel and they overlap and there's a violation of each. And for that reason, Maislin relied both on the duty to file and on the duty to follow. At uh, page 126 of the opinion, 497 U.S. at 126, the court said that the negotiated rates policy was inconsistent with both, quote, the duty to file rates with the commission citing the counterpart to 203A and the obligation to charge only those rates citing the counterpart to 203C. So what this case ultimately boils down to, and this is you know, really more of the reply to an argument today, is they're arguing that you shouldn't have followed the Maislin precedent here 
because the case involves, they say, a different industry and a different statute. Um, and in arguing that, they're asking you to overrule another line of cases, which says the statutes that are modeled on the Interstate Commerce Act are to be construed the same way unless there's material differences. That principle was, dates back at least to the 1932 U.S. navigation case, which we cite in our brief, and it was the basis for Maislin. Because in the Ma- really said that, that our guide should be Permian Basin, not Maislin. Uh, yes, he did. And that's a curious citation because Permian Basin didn't involve exceptions to, to rate filing requirements, but there was a subsequent follow-up to Permian Basin uh, that did, and that's the uh, FPC v. Texaco case, um, 417 U.S. 380, um, and, and that involved the kind of modifications of the rate filing requirements that we say permissible. It involved uh, small gas producers who didn't deal with ultimate consumers and sold their output exclusively to pipelines whose rates were regulated. And the court didn't, didn't exempt the filing of those rates. It allowed the, the large, the pipeline with whom the small producers sold to file the rates. And the court said that that would be consistent with the statute if, 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 if it were the case, it was remanded, but if it were the case that uh, in regulating the rates of the large producer, uh, it could be assured that the um, small producer's rates were just and reasonable. No issue of discrimination there because it dealt, the small producers dealt only with the uh, pipelines. They didn't file at all. The small producers did not. The small producers did not file. The rates were filed by the, the, the pipelines that each sold its output to exclusively. The small producers didn't deal with ultimate consumers at all. And that's okay, you think? I think if you could ever have a situation like that, uh, comparable to that in the telecommunications industry, which I can't imagine, uh, but if you ever could, it would be okay because the rates would be on file and the commission would be in a position uh, to assure uh, that the rates were lawful. Um, so I don't think, per- and, and the, the technical case that they cite says that the commission cannot uh, exempt um, carriers. It says uh, they cannot exempt carriers from the requirements of Section 2, 204, uh, which is um, where the rate filing requirement lives. So it's a curious citation. Um, so I think the position ultimately boils down to an argument that you shouldn't follow the Interstate Commerce Act precedents because uh, this case involves a different statute. Uh, but Nathan rejected that because there the court applied uh, pre-1935 decisions under the original Interstate Commerce Act, which applied only to railroads, and they applied it to motor carriers who were operating under a statute, which to them was a successor to the 1935 Motor Carrier Act. Um, and and the, the, in this situation, the, the Interstate Commerce Act precedents absolutely should apply because the uh, statute was, the provisions we're dealing with here, sections 201 to 210, uh, were copied almost verbatim in those in the Interstate Commerce Act. And this is a case like uh, Laurel R.D. Ponds, where Congress uh, exhibited you know, detailed knowledge of the provisions of, this, of another statute, uh, copied those provisions it wanted to, to follow, and then departed from other provisions it didn't want to f- uh, follow. Uh, sections two, one, 201 to 210 of the Communications Act were copied from those in the Interstate Commerce Act, and then they didn't want to uh, allow the FCC to preempt state regulation in the ways that the ICC had been allowed to do under uh, an earlier precedent of this court, that was at issue in the 1986 Louisiana, the FCC case. So they put other provisions in the statute uh, to, to make sure that the FCC wouldn't, in those limited respects, have the same um, uh, powers the ICC had and wouldn't be subject to the same uh, restriction. Mr. Uh, Carpenter, well, I'm a little troubled about uh, TOCTIA. Do, do, do we use an ac- acronym for that? Yeah, that's our acronym. Telephone TOCTIA? Yes. Um, uh, it seems to me that that legislation did assume that there was no filing. 
Um, do you contest no, that? No, I, I do contest that. Uh, uh, first place, it's argued that that was assuming that an FCC rule was valid, but as the Court of Appeals held here, it wasn't until 1992 that the FCC even said that this that it had adopted a rule that had uh, relieved carriers from the rate filing requirement. And the only interpretations of the statute that were in existence in the time, at the time that was enacted, was the 1985 decision of the D.C. Circuit, which says that carriers couldn't be exempted. Well, why did the legislation make any sense, then? The legislation... the filing requirement. The legislation made, made, made absolute sense. The, pr- the, problem, the problem the statute ex- ad- uh, addressed didn't have anything to do with whether rates were filed or not. The problem was that a new sort of cottage industry had arose, which involved both entities that weren't common carriers and weren't subject to the filing requirement, and entities like ATT, in theory, like ATT and MCI, there were. And, and what Congress did in that statute was it made everybody who provided operated services, including those who weren't carriers and weren't subject to the statute, made everybody file information. Some of it was information required by 203 rates, and some of it was other information that wasn't required by 203. And, and you'd say the carriers would have had to... Uh, uh, in addition to that, although it overlapped, would have to comply in, with, with, uh, with 203, generally? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It imposed additional obligations. Um, it imposed obligations on carriers uh, because it made them file information that wasn't required by 203, i.e. commissions, and it imposed obligations on non-carriers who weren't subject to any requirement at all. And the problem that led to the statute wasn't that the FCC wasn't uh, receiving rate filings. The problem was the FCC wasn't doing anything at all to combat, what, co- combat something that had become a massive problem, uh, which was these sort of new fly-by-night companies cutting deals with hotels and end up charging people uh, rates that were two or three times uh, those that ATT and MCI charged. So that's what that statute addressed. And the statute explicitly said that nothing in it could be construed as altering uh, the, uh, the obligations of any provision of the statute. Uh, and given that uh, at the time 203 was construed. Thank you, Mr. Carpenter. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Verrilli, you have four minutes. Mr. Ryder, Mr. Verrilli, whoever wants to take the rebuttal time, you have four minutes left. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. In response to AT&T's comments about Maislin and the filed rate doctrine, it is true, as has been pointed out, that that's a different, different issue arising under a different statute. I'd also like to suggest that uh, it's instructive to consider what, uh, what would happen if the, if the Communications Act said that the FCC may modify any requirement, including the tariff filing requirement. If the statute said that, I think there'd be no doubt, we, we wouldn't be here today. It would be clear that we could modify the tariff filing requirement if the statute said modify any requirement, including the tariff filing requirement. Now, in this hypothetical statute, in that circumstance, what had been said in a different context arising under a different statute wouldn't matter. In fact, that phrase, including the tariff filing requirement, would be redundant. The statute says modify any requirement, and it would be a peculiar, peculiar rule of statutory construction that required Congress uh, to be redundant. Now, one thing that's clearly come out... Your opponent would agree that that's... That, I don't think your opponent would agree that that statute would be... You would be right under that statute, because he says this is not a modification requirement. Well, I, I, the filing. I, I was going to say one thing that's come out is that, is that AT&T clearly thinks that under no circumstances at all uh, can the FCC lift the tariff filing requirement. No. And, well, no, they, 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 they would allow it to be filed by somebody else. So long as it's out there somewhere, and that, that's eliminating the tariff filing. Well, the first requirement is that they shall be filed, and, and AT&T says 
that we that the FCC doesn't have that authority. Uh, we think that it's clear that it therefore reads 203b2 to say modify some requirements, um, not any requirement, and, and that is what the statute says. One final point, if I may. Um, you know, the, 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 it's been suggested that Congress uh, would uh, couldn't imagine a de-tariffed world. Well, just last summer, with respect to commercial mobile carriers like cellular carriers, in Section 332C, Congress authorized the. Con- con- what Congress did was say that these cellular companies are generally subject to the Title II requirements we've been discussing today. But it said that the Commission may waive any requirement including the tariff filing requirement, except for three that it specified, uh, 201, 202, and 208. Uh, 202 is the one that prohibits unreasonable discrimination. So Congress, as, as shown last year in its enactment concerning cellular telephones, clearly envisions that unreasonable discrimination may be prohibited w- without tariffs. you know if a provision like this exists, uh, existed under the Civil Aeronautics Act? Uh, I do not know that, Your Honor. In, in any event, um, as I've also already pointed out, uh, there's really no answer to the fact that the Amtrak case, um, uh, under the Amtrak case, in the, uh, with different dictionary definitions, and I've been informed that in ABF freight, BNLRB, uh, th- this term the court has, uh, has applied Chevron to an independent agency, um, uh, the FCC ought to have discretion to reasonably interpret, modify any requirement to mean what it says. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wright. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.